The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Bring up to speed, we are going through the book of Acts. We are now in chapter 16 out of these 28 chapters in our English Bible. It's a book of history. It's real history, literal history, accurate history, inerrant history, inspired history, authoritative history, as God moved on this man named Luke, Luke the physician, Luke the evangelist, he's known as Luke, who became the associate of the Apostle Paul during Paul's missionary journeys. And in the 60s, early 60s, Luke was moved by God's Spirit to write down this account called the book of Acts. And because the superintending Holy Spirit was guiding Luke using his personality, his vocabularies, his experience, but because it was led by the Holy Spirit, everything in the book of Acts is exactly what God wanted us to know. And like I said, it is inerrant, it is authoritative. And for the last 2,000 years, God providentially has preserved this book for us. So here it is 2,000 years later. We can go to the book of Luke and be assured this is indeed what happened. God preserved it graciously for his people, his church, intentionally, it's reliable, and as a result, it can edify and bless the church today, edify and bless believers. And so uh, the story of the book of Acts is how the church began by the Lord Jesus Christ and his first apostles, and how the mandate was given by the church uh, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that is the goal and the mission of the church. That's the ultimate goal of every Christian to be a part of that vision. And so now uh, we started with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beginning of the church, in about 30 A.D. Now we're about fast forward about 20 years. The church has started, it blossomed in Jerusalem, began to spread to the outskirts of Judea, Samaria, going north, going south, and now we reach a new epoch in world history here because now the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the first time as far as we know in history, is going to go from Asia now into Europe into Europe, and that's what we're going to see in Acts 16. So that's one of the significant things about uh, Acts chapter 1, Acts 16, verses 1 through 15, where Paul takes the gospel into Europe for the first time in history. And Europe has actually never been the same ever since. Or the Western world, as a matter of fact, because of the impact of Christianity. It's pretty powerful. So we're going to look at the first 15 verses here. The book of Acts is narrative. It's written in story form. So it's easy to read, pretty much easy to understand. And because this is a history by Luke, it includes historical elements, a lot of which includes uh, geography. So it is pretty much impossible to study the book of Acts and thoroughly understand it without getting a hold of the geography. And so I did put out there for your convenience a hard copy of the geography of Paul's first missionary trip and then also his second missionary journey, which is where we are now, because there's so much information regarding geography that Luke writes down. You've got to be aware of it so you can fully appreciate and understand how God is leading his missionary team to the uttermost parts of the earth. So uh, I've, because it's narrative, you can't really outline the passage. So I just try to look at it thematically and see if there are things that to make a logical progression through the narrative. So that's what I've done. I just came up with three points here. And the emphasis that I put on is on people in the story. 
And it's pretty obvious. That comes right from the text. So go ahead and look at it. I titled it Paul's Second Journey, Part 2. Timothy, Luke, and Lydia. I highlighted those three. Timothy, Luke, and Lydia because they're mentioned in our passage, verses 1 through 15. I also highlighted Timothy, Luke, and Lydia because we pretty much meet them personally for the first time in the book of Acts. And they're significant to Paul's ministry. So, And then there's uh, truths around these three personalities that are in the text that we'll camp out on and highlight as well to our benefit that you might be edified. Before we jump into our three points there about Timothy, Luke, and Lydia and how God used them in the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, I just first wanted to make this point. In the first 15 verses, Luke mentions, get this, 17 geographical locations either cities or regions or districts, by name, some of which are still going by that name today, 2,000 years later, some of which are being referred to by the name in which they were attributed in the days of Luke 2,000 years ago, but they can still be identified very specifically and accurately today, 2,000 years later. So Luke mentions 17 specific geographical locations, cities, regions, or districts. I would add 18 in there and say Rome, the city of Rome, by virtue of the fact that he mentions a colony in this passage, and the colony is Philippi, and the colony definitely refers to Rome. A Roman colony is what Luke means. So that would be 18. So 18 specific geographic cities or locations mentioned in 15 verses in the book of Acts. That is amazing. That is amazing. That is a testimony to the fact this is true history. Luke was an eyewitness for uh, much of what he writes, including much of this chapter, and that the Bible is true. Critics of the Bible just continue to bash and knock the Bible, and they have for 2,000 years. And one of the main criticisms they typically use is, oh, the Bible is just, uh, it's archaic and it is fiction. It's not real history. It's not accurate. And that is just totally false. And you can learn the truth just by reading the book of Acts as you come across all these cities and locations and regions and continents and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them, and every single one of them can be found in a secular encyclopedia today. And many of those can be found if you travel over there today and visit the sites. Because back then, much of these cities and towns and whatever, and pillars and buildings, were built out of limestone. And a lot of the rulers and people there, like Sargon of Syria, he was so arrogant and in love with himself as he built temples dedicated to himself. He put his name in every stone or every brick in the building. So that today we can go over and do an archaeological dig and because at one time people said there was no such thing as Sargon. The Bible made that up. Until they found like a pile of bricks with a zillion bricks with Sargon's name in it. And the Bible is proven to be true once again. We don't need archaeology to justify the Bible, but that's just an example. So so we've got 17 geographical names compared to, um, just by way of example, comparing that to another religious book would be the Book of Mormon, which I've read several times. I've taught on the Book of Mormon. And so I was going through it again this week. And it has, as you're reading the Book of Mormon, you come across very unfamiliar characters, places, regions, cities, and it's like, man, I have never heard of this place. This isn't validated anywhere. You can't find it in any in secular encyclopedias. You can't go visit it and find it today. This sounds fictitious. And that, that's actually true. There are many dozens and dozens of cities in the Book of Mormon, just by way of example, that don't exist. They were fictitious. And in the 1830s, when Joseph Smith 
wrote it and he was making these names up, people believed him. But as time goes by, historians, scientists, archaeologists, geographers, especially in the secular world, continue to point out that, boy, there's a lot of these names in the Book of Mormon. They just, they aren't true. They never existed. Ablam, Zarahemla, the Valley of Alma, Amulon, Antipara, Manti, Zeram, Galam, I'd go on and on. Uh, but just wanted to make that contrast because these names just of these cities just kind of jumped out at me. 17 cities and 15 verses. Well, let's go ahead and look at the passage here. We are now on Paul's second missionary journey, part two. Last week, just to bring you up to speed, uh, Paul did missionary journey number one with his main partner, Barnabas, an older statesman, kind of a mentor early on. And then Paul was designated the apostle and he became a leader. Had a successful two two-year missionary journey, primarily preaching to Gentiles in cities that had never heard the gospel. Revivals in some of these churches came back. Paul and Barnabas reported to their church of all the great things God was doing among the Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas ended up staying at the church of Antioch, their home church, for a long period of time. And now much time has gone by, and now Paul's going to go out on a second missionary journey, starting with going back to the churches that he planted. So they're new, they're young, they're immature. They are lacking in revelation. So Paul wants to go back and strengthen those churches. In addition to that, he wants to plant new churches and keep going to that ultimate goal, the uttermost parts of the earth. But him and Barnabas, they had a falling out. They had a disagreement. Christians disagree. It was a heated disagreement. We saw that. Christians have heated disagreements. Tempers flared. We saw that too. Christians' tempers sometimes flare. And they parted company. And God providentially turned one team into two missionary teams. And so now the Holy Spirit is going to follow Paul's uh, ministry the rest of the book of Acts. So we are on the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. The second missionary journey is covered in chapter 15, 16, 17, and 18 of the book of Acts. Paul's going to travel about 2,800 miles. So he's going to more than double the amount of miles he traveled in his first missionary journey. That's, that's an arduous distance to travel in his day with the lack of technology. Much of this on foot, on camel, on donkey, on a wild pig if he found one, who knows. Uh, across seas that were tumultuous, putting his life on the line, bandits and pirates on the roadways, subjected to all kinds of disease and malaria. So it was a walk of faith. God preserved them 2,800 miles over the course of three years. The first one was about two years. This one's going to take about three years. Big chunk of that three years, he plants a church in the city called Corinth, and he's going to spend 18 months there, planting the church, raising the church, pastoring the church. And on his missionary journey, he doesn't have Barnabas with him. And John Mark, he has his new partner, Silas. So we actually could have added Silas to the title here. Paul's second journey, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and Lydia. So let's go ahead and look at the first eight verses here as Paul begins his second missionary journey with goal number one, going back to strengthen these brand new weak baby churches in southern Galatia that he planted, one of which was actually got chased out of town out of three of them, and then he got stoned almost to death in one of them. And he wants to return to those churches, and so that's where we are. So we'll pick it up. Point number one, and we're going to meet Timothy here, uh, verses 1 through 8. Timothy. Uh, let's go ahead and read through verses 1 through 8. And it came also, uh, Paul and Silas came also to Derby as they're going, now they're going up north. He came also to Derby 
and to Lystra. These are cities that he has visited before. He planted churches there. Um, and behold, by the way, he comes to Lystra now. If you looked on your map there, that's in southern Galatia. And Lystra is where he got chased out of town and almost stoned to death. Literally, they stoned him to the point where he became unconscious. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. So that was like two or three years ago. And he's going back to that church that chased him out of town and tried to kill him. So there's probably a wanted picture of his face in the local post office. He's going back into the heart of the city. This shows his commitment to God, his faith in God, his courage and his love for the church. They need to be encouraged. I'm going to go back to that city of Lystra that tried to kill me. This will be the third time, actually, that he'll be in the city of Lystra. By the way, there was a, a great response in the city of Lystra in terms of the gospel. One family in particular was uh, actually two ladies, Eunice and Lois. They were Jewish. They had revelation from the Old Testament scriptures somehow. Uh, grandmother Lois... Mother Eunice. Eunice had a son. His name was Timothy. Probably the first time Paul came through Lystra. Uh, Timothy, young Timothy. He was raised in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, grandma and mom. So they had a divided home. They had an unequally yoked home. Lois, being a Jew, was married to a Greek husband. It's readily apparent that the, the Greek husband didn't buy into the Jewish religion. Therefore, the son, Timothy was not raised in a synagogue, but was taught the Hebrew Scriptures and the revelation that they had by grandma and mom at home from the time he was an infant, from the time he was just a, a little boy. So uh, Timothy was exposed to supernatural truth of the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but he probably wasn't taught in the synagogue. And his dad probably was maybe at times resistant to that, but tolerated it, acquiesced to the point they didn't get divorced, they didn't separate, they stayed married. But mom, Lois... Timothy's mom, was submissive to her husband. She was sensitive to the fact that he wasn't a full-blooded Jew, didn't buy into the religion apparently because uh, he didn't allow Timothy to get circumcised. Had the dad approved of the religion, then the dad would have converted to Judaism, would have got circumcised himself, and would have circumcised his son Timothy. He didn't do that. So you have an unequally yoked relationship here. But apparently mom is being a good witness, being a faithful woman, being a good wife, being a good mother. Timothy has not been circumcised. Yet when Paul came into town uh, and Timothy was maybe an early teenager, he heard this apostle and this amazing stuff about Jesus Christ fulfilling the Old Testament that Timothy was familiar with. He heard the Old Testament from his mom, and so he became a fulfilled Jew. Amazing, very exciting. So it could be that Timothy... Uh, was born again the first time Paul came through, gave the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his faith came to fruition. First, under the guidance of his mother and his grandmother, and then culminated when the apostle Paul came to that town. And then Timothy, no doubt, maybe as he heard the truth of the gospel and became a true believer at that time, could very well be because it was a small town, that he actually saw the apostle Paul get mauled and uh, pummeled almost to death and dragged out of the city. Maybe that was the last thing that Timothy saw about the Apostle Paul, thinking maybe the Apostle Paul was dead for all he knew. Well, a few years later, Paul comes back to town and Paul gets to providentially see Timothy. He's two or three years older. Maybe he's in his late teens now. He sees Eunice. He sees Lois. And they just have a, a, a beautiful 
reunion and get together along with all the other saints. And that's the context here because it goes on in verse 1. Paul also came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, get this, it's amazing. Three years later, there was a, a disciple there named Timothy. Timothy was there the first time Paul was there. A certain disciple was there. His name is Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren. That means fellow believers in the church. So after three years, Timothy gained a reputation of being a solid young man of God of faith with full integrity. As a teenager. That's rare. That is awesome. And his reputation, young Timothy, his reputation circulated throughout the city, Lystra, but also in the next city. Miles away. Iconium. This is, this is a prime candidate for the Apostle Paul to take on a young man, to disciple him, to pour his life into him, to use him as a servant on the mission trip in place of John Mark in that whole unfortunate circumstance. And that's exactly what God does. Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren, fellow believers there, who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted him, verse, verse 3. So Paul spends some time there. He gets to know Timothy. Maybe mom and grandma have him over for dinner. And he realizes, boy, this is a quality young man. I want this man. Mom, I want your son. I want him on the mission trip. I want him now. He doesn't even have to go to Bible college for two years. I want him now. And you can imagine mom and grandma. The last thing they saw, the Apostle Paul being dragged out half dead. That's missions. Really? You're going to take my teenage son away from me on your missions trips? To get subjected to torture and persecution and possibly stoned to death? What a challenge for mom and grandma. Huge step of faith to let their son go. Well, ultimately they know, no doubt, that their child belongs to God more than to them. They are mere stewards. They know that Paul is a man of God, an apostle, led by the Spirit of God. So Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so they have a discussion, no doubt. And it's agreed that Paul is going to take Timothy, add him to the missions team. So Paul took uh, Timothy, adds him to the team, and here's what he does. He circumcises Timothy which is strange because Paul just went to fight for the Gentiles for the last, who knows, year at the Jerusalem Council telling the Judaizers that a Gentile doesn't have to get circumcised in order to be saved. And here he turns around and circumcises Timothy. That seems weird. Seems like, is that a contradiction? Why are you doing that, Paul? Are you trying to appease the Judaizers? No. So Paul's not doing this because of justification or salvation to circumcise Timothy. Timothy is half Jew and half Gentile. Paul had another associate, his name is Titus. He's in Galatians 2 and other places. And Titus was also a young man that joins Paul's team. Titus was a full-blooded Gentile. Jewish, uh, Gentile mom, Gentile dad. No Jewish blood. And when people wanted to circumcise Titus, now that he was a Christian, Paul said, absolutely not, no way, you aren't touching him. And Paul was adamant about it, and he refused to let Titus get circumcised. And that had to do with salvation, justification, and that principle. Titus doesn't need to do anything else to become more pleasing to God. This is a practical decision on the part of Paul. That's all it is. But because Timothy was half Jew, and he was raised by Jewish mom, and he's now a completed Jew, he's going to get circumcised. By the way, when a Jew became a Christian, especially in early on in the book of Acts, all those who got saved were Jews. Peter, all the apostles, everybody. For the first five years in the church of Jerusalem, they were all Jews becoming Christians. And if you weren't paying attention, did you notice that once they became a Christian, they didn't stop doing Jewish things? 
They didn't renounce circumcision. They didn't stop going to the temple. They didn't stop celebrating Jewish holidays. They didn't stop praying at prayer times in the temple now that they were Christians. They didn't jettison their Judaism. Also, when Jesus was training his apostles, he never said, oh, by the way, once the church starts and you become a Christian and the body of Christ, stop doing that Jewish thing. By the way, condemn the Jewish thing. Jesus never said that. Peter keeps, keeps going to temple. Paul, and, who was a Jew, keeps going to synagogue, teaching in synagogue, wearing the appropriate clothing as a rabbi in the synagogue, saying the same prayers that they said as Jews growing up in the synagogue that came from the Old Testament. So it was perfectly legitimate for a Jew who became a Christian to still practice biblical Judaism with the understanding that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. It has nothing to do with gaining forgiveness of sin or salvation. So this is strictly a practical ministry decision. He even tells us why in verse 3. So why did Paul have Timothy the half-Jew get circumcised? Because it was strategic for missions and evangelism. Because of the Jews. And not because of believing Jews. Because of unbelieving Jews. That's what it means. Because of unbelieving Jews, they're going to meet on the mission trip in the synagogues in every city that they go to because that was Paul's strategy. Acts 17 will bear this out. As was Paul's custom, the first thing he did is he finds a synagogue in a city he's never been to. That's going to be true in Athens. He's never been to Athens as far as we know. He's shocked by Athens, but one of the first things he does at these cities, he tries to find a synagogue. Jews, a listening audience. He is a rabbi. They will welcome him as a teacher. They have common ground in Old Testament truth. They have common ground in Yahweh is the creator. He is almighty judge. They have common ground on Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah, Savior of the world. And then Paul will tell them Jesus is that Messiah. That's where the problems arose. So this is strategic. So Paul's going to be going into, by the way, he's got Silas with him. Silas is a Jew. Silas was circumcised. Silas was from Jerusalem. So Paul and Silas will be welcomed in all these synagogues. And if he's got an uncircumcised partner named Timothy, that will be offensive to unbelieving Jews. So Paul wants to be all things to all men so that he might win some. With the gospel, that is 1 Corinthians 9. One of my strategies that I made a priority is I will be all things to all men so that I might win some. And Paul wasn't saying I'm going to compromise my theology. That isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about cultural things. He's talking about gray areas. He's talking about areas of flexibility and latitude in terms of culture, not to give a needless offense to someone so that you no longer have an audience. For example, if I go over to India, now that I've been there a couple of times, I know out of courtesy to Christians and non-Christians in India that I should probably take my shoes off before I go into their home or into their church. It's cultural. Take my shoes off. Here in America, you take your shoes off and try to go into a church, they'll kick you out. No shoes, no service. That's a very American thing. Jesus probably would get kicked out of some churches because he'd violate that policy. So that's a cultural thing. Uh, when I went to Russia, I quickly realized that you don't ever set a holy book, the Bible, on the ground, ever. That is, I mean, blasphemous. Even to unbelievers, they're like, wow, you're putting a Bible on the ground. And so my interpreter said, get that Bible off the ground. You've got to put it up and it's got to be resting because it is holy, it is sacred, it is don't defile it. That was a cultural thing. It doesn't bother me putting the Bible on the ground, it's just a book. 
but to accommodate them, not to be a needless stumbling block. I do all things. I become like all people so that I might be able to save some and not be in a defense. So that's what Paul's doing here. This is not a contradiction at all. This is actually just being very wise and deferential to people and their sensibilities and their culture. When we go on missions, we don't try to change people's culture in the way they are. We don't go to India and say, you need to be Western Americanized. That's not missions. That's not the biblical mandate. We go with the gospel. So a lot of wisdom by Paul here. So gets permission probably from mom and grandma to take Timothy. He has him circumcised uh, who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek and the imperfect tense of the verb here was implies that father was no longer around. He doesn't have a dad now. So very well be that Timothy's mom was a widow. And that's why at this point Paul takes Timothy on and considers him his son, his spiritual son. God used him in seeing him come to Christ along with his mom and grandma. And then he becomes one of Paul's most loyal companions, does Timothy, for the next 15 plus years, all the way up until Paul's death. Verse 4, now while they were passing through the cities uh, in southern Galatia, they were delivering the decrees to mostly Gentile Christians. Paul had written probably the book of Galatians at this time, and he reprimanded the Galatians saying, don't fall prey to that false gospel with these Jews coming in saying that, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus plus getting circumcised to be saved. That's wrong. That is heresy. That is evil. And, and you guys bought into it. And that was foolish. Don't do that. And I went down to Jerusalem and the leadership of Jerusalem, the 12 apostles, Peter, James, the leader of the church, they put it in writing. They agree with me that as a Gentile, you are saved simply by the gospel, by grace through faith, apart from works. You don't need to be circumcised. That's the decree they're issuing and making clear. They're trying to silence and shut down the poisoning Judaizers. So they're delivering these decrees, which middle of verse 4, which had been decided upon the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So they are unified on this issue. And that is so important for them to observe. Verse 5, so the churches were being strengthened. That is a key phrase. The churches were being strengthened. That was Paul's goal. Let's go back to the churches we started and strengthen them. They're under persecution. They're under duress. They have limited information. They don't have as much revelation as some believers. They're not close to the heart and the hub of Jerusalem. They are isolated. They need help. They need to be strengthened. They're probably weak in leadership. Let's go back and try to raise up some leaders. Let's get a plurality of elders going. Let's spend some time with them. Let's shepherd them. Let's pray with them. Let's encourage them. Let's give them more revelation that God has given us. And as a result, they are strengthened. And that's what one of the missions or the goals of missions is, is to strengthen local churches around the world. So they were strengthened in the faith. They were strengthened according to God's truth. They were strengthened according to Scripture, to God's Word, to revelations Paul was being given and the apostles. And as a result, one of the byproducts is they were increasing in number daily. And they were excited. They were new believers. They're out evangelizing. They're telling their neighbors. They're telling their relatives. And God is blessing. And people are getting saved. And the church continues to grow and blossom. Jesus promised to build the church. Here's evidence of it. The church is growing. Verse 6, And they passed through... So now they've got they... Paul, Silas, Timothy, and maybe some other servants along the way. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. And again, that's still southern Galatia. And Paul had an agenda. Okay, we went to those churches that we established. Hey, let's, let's keep moving. Let's, let's go down. Let's stay on this main Roman road that's so convenient that leads all the way to that key port city, Ephesus. 
Man, that is a vital, huge, important city, man. If we can just go to Ephesus, what an impact we can have there. So that's what Paul tries to do. Kind of going straight ahead and a little bit down towards the coast of Asia. That's where he wants to go. So he's leading his team. Let's go to Asia. Let's go to Ephesus. And it says in verse 6, as they were passing through Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So God put a door there, an impediment in Paul's way, and prevented him from going down to Ephesus and Asia, where those familiar seven churches of Asia Minor are that are listed in the book of Revelation. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea. Actually, Laodicea is on the border there, um, along next to Colossae, but in that region. So God says, no, you're not going there. How did God say no? Well, it just says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. God stopped them. Verse 7, and when they had come, okay, fine, we can't go down to Ephesus. Hey, let's go up north. Let's go to Bithynia. Let's go straight up north. So Paul tries that with his missionary team. And when they had come to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia. That's going up north. And the Spirit of Jesus, which is the same as the Holy Spirit in the, the previous verse, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they're trying to move, and God's stopping them, cutting them off at every pass here. God says, no, don't go that way. So God's directing them by saying no. That's an important principle. God directs us oftentimes by saying no. God, I want this. No. God, I want to go there. No. God, I want this. No. That's an answer from God. You shouldn't always be discouraged and moan and groan when God says no. No can be one of the greatest acts of love. Did you know that? Say that to your child, your four-year-old. Daddy, I want to go play in the highway. Please, can I with my cars and my Play-Doh? No. But why not, Daddy? No. I love you. No. So no can be a beautiful thing. No can direct in wisdom and experience. And God is sovereign. He is in control. Verse 6. Those are interesting phrases, by the way. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 7. The Spirit of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, did not permit them. And immediately you're asking, well, how did the Spirit of God communicate that to Paul and Silas. Did he say, uh, an audible voice from heaven? No, Paul, don't go that way. An audible voice from heaven? Well, that's possible. Because Jesus heard an audible voice from heaven in the Gospel of John. Paul's already heard an audible voice from Jesus in Acts chapter 9. So it's very, And Paul was an apostle. And he tells us clearly in Ephesians and Galatians, that he got direct revelation from Jesus as an apostle. He had that gift. He had that ability. So God would communicate to the apostle Paul on rare occasion. By the way, this is not normative. It didn't happen frequently. He tried to find how many times God spoke audibly to a human being in 4,000 years of biblical history. It would be on less than two hands the, the number of times. That's why you can't take one occasion. Oh, here the Spirit of God forbade Paul, therefore, the Holy Spirit of God speaks to Christians normally all the time, every day with audible voices. And he speaks to me every day, all the time with an audible voice. You shall have Cheerios, Cheerios, Cheerios this morning. No, that isn't how God works. So it's on rare occasion, divine revelation, I think primarily because the Apostle Paul was an apostle. He was a direct conduit of special revelation. That was unique. That was a gift. That was a mark of an apostle. Second Corinthians 12, 12, among other things. 
And we already saw in the book of Acts, chapter after chapter after chapter, it said that miracles were being done by the hand, at the hands of the apostles. Miracles were being done at the hands of the apostles. That is repeated over and over, at the hands of the apostles. Paul is an apostle. He receives direct revelation. But it could very well be, it doesn't say it was a, an audible voice. It could very well be, be that God is just communicating and directing through the circumstances of life. This is called providence. This is called the second causes. So it's just events. God could have used normal things in life providentially as he's orchestrating everything to deter Paul from going. It could have been the weather. It could have been uh, people who were hostile. It could have been the rugged terrain. It could have been uh, 50 other things that appear to be normal human events that put up a wall in Paul's way to direct. That's how God works mostly today through us. He is in charge. He doesn't intervene directly most of the time. Now he does it providentially through the circum. I mean, it's just amazing. That that's a miracle in itself. Through causes and second circumstances, and uh, we think things are happening by coincidence, by chance, or that I'm doing it. No, God. God is in charge. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is almighty. His will is always accomplished. He doesn't. He never violates our will or our decisions, which also is amazing and a mystery. But he moves providentially through second causes in keeping with our volition sometimes and also uh, against our will. If there's uh, some a tornado and prevents him from going, that's against my will. I want to go, but there's a tornado. But that was a, a natural cause. So anyway, that could very well be how God was moving and directing Paul. We just don't know. And I would say that when it happened in 50 A.D., Paul probably wasn't thinking, oh, I wanted to go to Ephesus and I'm not allowed to go. Man, our plans have been shot. Silas, we can't go to Ephesus now. And then they're all disappointed. Could be that Paul wasn't thinking, well, actually, the Holy Spirit has determined that we not go there. Not necessarily. Luke is writing this account almost 15 years after it happened. And Luke is being moved by the Spirit of God to write this. And Luke is reflecting back in hindsight, in retrospect, as a more mature Christian man moved by the Spirit. And it could be that Luke came to realize through the leading of the Holy Spirit, you know what? When me and Paul and Silas, or when, when Silas and Paul were deterred from going there, that was actually the Spirit of God directing them. And that's why Luke puts it there. We definitely know those phrases are there because the Spirit of God prompted Luke to write it. So we can't come up with all kinds of crazy theology based on two phrases like that is my, my point. And we just got to trust God. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. At the end of verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them to go. And so verse 8, so they changed direction. We can't go south. We can't go north. Let's just keep going straight. And that's where they go. They go through Mycenae and they end up on the coast in front of the Aegean Sea. And they can't go anywhere else. And they end up in a city that was a, a seaport called Troas. And that's where they are at the end of verse 8. Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. Troas was a significant city because it was a port. And people traveled there to get from Asia to Europe, Europe to Asia. So it was quite significant. That's where they end up. That wasn't Paul's plan. Let's go to Troas. But God led them there. And they're courageous. And they walk by faith. And they are submissive to God's leading. And they know that God is in control. It's beautiful. Paul's on missions. What's the number one rule of missions? Flexibility. And Paul and, Bar uh, Paul and uh, Silas are flexible here. Things don't always go according to plan. 
So let's go on to point number two. So there's where they pick up Timothy, who will be that loyal partner and servant of the Apostle Paul the rest of his days. And then uh, they pick up a new person for their missionary team, and that's 9 through 12, and that's Luke. Luke, the learned physician. He was educated. He was a physician. He was a doctor. He's a medical doctor. He went to training for that. Timothy didn't have the luxury of going to an academic university or institution being that young age that he was, but Luke was. Luke was a little older. Luke was a trained medical physician. It could very well be that he got trained in Philippi, which is a nearby. They're about to go to Philippi. Philippi had a world-famous medical school at the time, according to history. Uh, could very well be that Luke knows the city of Philippi, spent some time in residency there, got trained there as a doctor, knows the ins and outs, knows the people, knows the customs, knows where the synagogue is. How ideal to have him a part of the missions team where Paul's going to places he'd never been before. That is absolutely strategic. So God is graciously building Paul's missionary team, and he does that by adding Luke to the team, verses 9 through 12. He was learned. Uh, he has. We know he was also educated by way of his Greek. You read the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, and it has a distinctive flavor in terms of the Greek language. For example, it's a little more complex than the Gospel of John. So John the Apostle knew Greek, but he's very simple in terms of his constructions and word usage and syntax. And then you read Luke, and you've got uh, a very uh, higher level of sophisticated Greek and way more words in terms of his vocabulary bank. And even incorporates a bunch of medical terms throughout his writing. So very distinct. So Luke is educated. He is a learned man, which is a good compliment to the apostle Paul, who was also highly educated. So look at verse 9. As they're now at Troas. And a vision appeared, verse 9, to Paul in the night. So Paul is an apostle. Acts chapter 2 promised on the day of Pentecost in light of Joel chapter 2, that at the end of the age, in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit in an unprecedented manner. One of those unique ways the Spirit of God would be poured out is that the Spirit of God would land upon and go inside of every believer. And there would be manifestations, supernatural manifestations, of the work of the Spirit. Where Acts chapter 2 goes on to quote Luke saying that young men and older men, they will have dreams and visions. And this is fulfilled in part with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, called by God to be an apostle, he has dreams that are supernatural. He has visions that are direct revelation. I have never had a dream. I have never had a vision that was supernatural, divine revelation from Almighty God. Some Christians say that they have. Some Christians believe that they do. Just after 30 plus years of being a Christian, I have never had that privilege. I don't think I ever will either. And that's not from a lack of faith. That's because I believe that's what the Bible clearly teaches. That was a gift. God gives spiritual gifts as He wills. He gave unique spiritual gifts to the apostles. It's undeniable. God still gives spiritual gifts. I believe in visions and I believe in miracles and they are all conveniently written down for me and every Christian right here. So I think this was a, a unique opportunity. The Apostle Paul who said he got visions, direct revelation from Jesus Himself and here's one of them. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia, this would be today's modern northern Greek in Europe. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to Paul. How do we know there was a man of Macedonia? He could have said to Paul maybe in a vision, 
We are from Macedonia. Come help us. But it was clear from Macedonia was standing and appealing to Paul and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come bring the good news of Jesus Christ that we might know salvation in the creator of the universe. It's amazing. This is unique. This is never replicated. Verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, circle we, that is the first time we is used in the book of Acts. This is where Luke joins the team. I believe they met Luke in Troas. What was Luke doing in Troas? I don't know. Philippi was not far away. He studied medical uh, medical school at Philippi, probably. Maybe he's just he knew people in Troas. Maybe he's just traveling through, going back to Antioch. Some people say he was from Antioch. But for whatever reason, Luke joins the team at Troas. God providentially brought Luke to Paul and his team. And this is the first time we is used. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. So Luke is a believer. He is a mature believer. And Paul believes he is qualified to be on the team, and he joins the team. This is an amazing team. Now Paul has an educated uh, helper in Luke. It could very well be that uh, Luke... Well, we know that Luke penned the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. So it could be that he's taken notes of these eyewitness accounts now that he begins the, the trip with Paul. And he can attend to Paul who was suffering physical ailments. He... At this very time, Paul wrote the Galatians and said, God, I thank you, you were so gracious. And he's mad at them because they're believing false truth. But he commends them for being so gracious and open. You, you welcomed me at the time when I was sick. And I, I was deplorable. I was disgusting. I, and most people wouldn't want anything to do. But you welcomed me despite my physical condition. And we don't know what that condition was. Most people think it was some kind of physical ailment. Malaria. Strong possibility, among other things. And now he's got Luke to help him recover from his physical ailments. Well, Paul, here's how you resuscitate from getting stoned to death. Breathe in deeply. Or who knows what Luke was saying. But he's a blessing from God. And so Luke chimes in and he says, So we sought to go to Macedonia, immediate obedience, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There it is. Come help us. It wasn't come help us and start a, a school for children. Come help us and start a soup kitchen. Come help us and give us the social gospel. Come help us improve our technology. Come help. Come help us do what? Luke tells us right here. We had concluded God had commissioned to us to go to Macedonia to help them by preaching the gospel to them, by preaching the good news to them, by telling them about Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, so they can have their sins forgiven, so that they can know God the Creator and be reconciled and at peace with Him. That is good news. That's what they have to offer. That is the greatest gift anybody can offer. That is the goal and the foundation of missions. Missions, first and foremost and always, is bringing the good news of the gospel to people wherever we go, local and global. Verse 11, they are focused. They won't lose focus. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. That's what Paul said. So clear. Didn't get distracted. It's easy to get distracted. 
Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course. We ran a, a straight, that's a nautical term, meaning, wow, the wind was great that day. The wind was at our back. Man, we didn't, have, we didn't veer to the right or the left. Man, whoo, we were making good time. They're traveling, I don't know, 30, 40 miles. Did it in a day. That was a good time. We ran a straight course to Samothrace. Samothrace was an island halfway between where they're going. They're in the Aegean Sea. Kind of difficult to access because it didn't have a formal port as far as we know, Samothrace. So they stopped at the island of Samothrace and stayed there overnight. And then the next day, they hit out from Sam- up for another 30 miles to the seaport of Neapolis, which is now Europe, which is heading to their goal and destination, Philippi. And God is in control. Verse 12, and from there, Neapolis, now that they enter Europe for the first time in history... They go to the port, Neapolis, and now they have to walk 10 miles north up to Philippi. Philippi, significant city. That's where they're going to stop. Philippi. That's where the book of Philippians comes from. Philippi. When I say Philippi and you're a Christian, when I say Philippians and you're a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, a couple of things should immediately come to your mind. Philippians, Galatians, Corinthians. That'd be fun to do a word association with you if you're a Christian. Corinthians, immoral, Corinthians, sinful, Corinthians, gossipers, Corinth, but they're Christians. Okay, let's try Galatians. Galatians, foolish, Galatians, idiots, Galatians, stupid, Galatians, deceived, but they're Christians. I'm not exaggerating. This is in the book of Galatians. Philippians. Oh, joy. Philippians, love. Philippians. Have their head on straight. Philippians, they don't give Paul grief. Philippians, they are incredibly generous with their resources. Philippians, no, that's just a good... I want to hang out in Philippians, all four chapters forever. And just get away from the vicissitudes and the realities of life. That's the Philippians. Although when Paul's going to meet it, it is not Philippians yet. It is utterly, totally pagan to the core from the influences of Greek paganism and Roman paganism. And that's what Paul's going to confront. And by the way, Paul's custom as he went into every city was to go to the Jewish synagogue. There isn't one in Philippi. Could mean that Jews were not welcome in Philippi. Philippi, a Roman colony at that time. Philippi, a famous historical city. Philippi, a city of significance you'll find in any encyclopedia, including secular encyclopedias. Philippi, a city that actually intersects with true world history. Philippi, that intersects with names like Julius Caesar, Octavius, Augustus, Mark Antony, Brutus, et tu Brute? Cassius, Shakespeare. That's how significant Philippi was in terms of its history. It's a real place. And that's where Paul's headed. It's a Roman colony. What does that mean? Very few cities outside of Italy, outside of Rome, were considered Roman colonies. What's a Roman colony? A Roman colony is a, a, a key city throughout the then known world outside of Italy where the Roman emperor would designate that town, that city, a Roman colony as though it were another city of Rome with all rights and privileges. And it was usually uh, based on a military presence of Rome there. Many times they settled and retired Roman, roughed up, surviving Roman 
uh, warriors and veterans settling those cities and keeping those cities protected. And it was a, a, a outpost for Caesar and the empire of Rome with all rights and privileges in that town or that city or that small colony. And those rights and privileges in, in a Roman colony included uh, freedom from tribute and taxation, the right to have your own autonomous government. This is true in Philippi where Paul's about to go. One of the rights and privileges of a Roman colony also was that you had, if you were a Roman citizen, you had rights that protected you. You had the right to a trial. You had the right to a fair trial. That's huge. That's going to come up later on in the chapter. Paul is a Roman citizen. When he walks into Philippi, he has all rights and privileges, even though he has never stepped foot in that town. Many of the movers and shakers in uh, Philippi could have been non-Roman citizens for all we know. Paul was a Roman citizen. Get this, Silas was a Roman citizen. Barnabas was not. Silas is going to walk into that town with all rights and privileges. This plays into the latter part of chapter 16 we're going to see. But anyway, so let's go back. They leave Neapolis, they go... 10 miles, and they finally get to their destination of Philippi. And from there, they got to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for, for some days, for many days. And what do they start doing? Preaching the gospel. They look for a Jewish synagogue. They can't find one. There's not enough Jews there. Well, we know when there are Jews, they usually go by the river and have prayer time formally, either in a building or just on the hill there. So they go to the river to try to find some Jews collecting that will become a synagogue someday, and they'll have a captive audience to talk about the Old Testament and the fulfillment of that in Jesus the Messiah. And that takes us to 13 through 15. And that takes us to Lydia, the third character. Lydia, the loving prospect, the prospect of salvation. And on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, on Saturday, we went outside the gate to a riverside. They would go to buy a river because the Jews, if there was a synagogue, they had all these water rituals they had to do that were in the Old Testament and also that they just made up along the way. Washings and baptisms and cleansings. So having a river was convenient. That's why they're by the river. Philippi had a river. They go there. We were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. A synagogue wasn't there. What was there, we sat down and began to speak. There were Jewish women there, or at least one of one of be Jewish women. God fears women who were Gentiles who were interested in Judaism. And that's what happened. So they sit down with a handful of Jewish women. And Paul begins speaking to the women who would assemble. Paul begins preaching out of the Bible. He's telling about the Old Testament culminating in Jesus the Messiah. Lydia is there. She's a prominent woman. She's a wealthy woman. She's a God-fearer. She has a heart that's sensitive towards Yahweh. She's not a full-blooded Jew. She's a Gentile who's interested in the faith of the Old Testament, this Yahweh creator God, who's very different than the pagans and all the idols and the buildings surrounding her. God has prepared her heart. He's been wooing her heart. He's been drawing her heart because that's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does. John 16, the Spirit of God is working on every unbeliever, softening them, preparing them, convicting them, wooing them, primarily working on their conscience, using natural revelation to remind them of His existence, His reality, using supernatural revelation when it is available to draw them to Christ. This has been going on in Lydia's heart, mind, and conscience for years. And now it's going to come to fruition with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Paul. 
She is listening. She's listening to his preaching. Verse 14, and a certain woman named Lydia. There are many women there. Lydia stands out. There are many women there, apparently, regardless of how small the group is. She stood out. She responded. She was proactive. Some women, some women maybe just sat there, didn't respond. Some maybe in their heart despised what Paul had to say. Some maybe were warmed by it and interested and too afraid to respond. Lydia responded. So a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. So she's from Ephesus. She's not even from this town of Philippi. Why is she there? Because it is a strategic Roman colony with soldiers there. And her profession as a woman is a, she dies and sells fabrics. And it even tells us what color. Purple. The entire Roman army was regaled in purple. She is a wise business woman. They need purple. I make purple. She's constantly selling purple. She's a woman of means because she says she has a household. So a certain woman, Lydia from Thyatira, she's a seller of purple fabrics. She was a worshiper of God. She was interested in Yahweh. She wasn't a full-blooded Jew. She was listening. She was attentive. She was convicted. And a miracle happened. A miracle happened. This miracle still happens today. It's amazing. In the middle of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond. The Lord opened her heart to believe. Isn't that awesome? That is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because it reminds us, God is sovereign in salvation. I didn't save myself. I wasn't saved because some somebody gave me an ironclad logical argument that I couldn't refute when I was an unbeliever. Somebody gave me the gospel, and unbeknownst to me, as a hardened, recalcitrant, resisting unbeliever, God was working on my conscience since the time I was born, having grace upon me, circumstances He's bringing my way, wooing me, working on my conscience, people telling me the gospel, biblical truth, all the way, and He's working on my heart. He's intervening. His Holy Spirit, John 16, is working on my heart, softening it, tenderizing it, so that I might receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. I desperately need that. I can't save myself. I am a blind, dead sinner. How can I save myself in that condition? I can't. One of my worst conditions is that I am blind. I can't see the truth of the gospel because I'm blinded by my own sin. That's Romans 1 and Ephesians 2. I am doubly blind because 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan blinds unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the gospel. God needs to supernaturally intervene to rip away the blinders of every unbeliever, to rip away the blinders of their own personal sin and the blindness of Satan. Humans can't do that. Your debating and arguing can't do that. Your pleading can't do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that, coupled with the Spirit of God working on that person's heart. God does the harvest. You know, we are, we're just seed planters. That's all. Throw some seeds over there. And I'll throw some seeds over there. I'm going to pray for that seed. God is the harvester. God is the one who saves. Men don't save themselves. Men don't ultimately choose to save themselves apart from God's initiative and His sovereign control every step of the way. I am just like Adam. I sin, I run. I sin, I hide in the bushes. The Creator hounds me and comes after me. He rescues me at His initiative, not my own. And out of grace and mercy, He gives me the gospel. Out of His grace and mercy, He opens my eyes. Out of His grace and mercy, He gives me the gift of faith to believe. And it is in keeping with my volition. It is my decision. It is my understanding. He doesn't save me against my will. But God is the initiator, the creator of salvation. 
God is the one who opens the heart. If you know someone right now and you are a Christian and they are not saved and it is somebody close to you, it is a family member. It is a, somebody you've been witnessing to and praying for. Just, just keep praying. And your prayer needs to be focused. Dear God, open up their heart that they might believe. Dear God, open up their heart that they might believe your truth. God, there's nothing else I can do. You are sovereign and in control. God will answer that prayer. God will attend to that prayer as he sees fit for his glory. We've got to trust him. And the best way, another one of my favorite verses that summarizes this truth that God is sovereign in salvation is Jonah chapter 2. And there's that little phrase that just says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from Yahweh. It's a work of God, not a work of man. This is the distinctive of true biblical Christianity. The Lord opened her heart to respond. The Lord, boy, that sounds like Calvinism. The Lord opened her. So Luke was a Calvinist. Long before Calvin was born, I would have to say yes. In terms of soteriology, yes. According to this verse, yes. Which reminds me of Luke did it again back if we were paying attention back in Acts 13.48 when Luke said this, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Whoa. That's hard to comprehend. God's the author of salvation. So Lydia responds. The Lord opened her heart. She believes. It's awesome. There's a celebration. She's a changed person. She is a new creation. Uh, she's now got a heart full of the love of God, which has been shed abroad in her heart, and she is going to act on that new love and compassion she has for fellow believers, including Paul and his team of missionaries. Verse 15. And when she and her whole household had been baptized. What does that mean? That she had a household. She was rich. She had means. Uh, she could have been a widow and maybe she had servants and people that lived there and cousins and friends and maybe people in her business. It was a household. This is a phrase repeated eight times in the New Testament, a household, a bunch of people who lived at her house. So she went and Paul went there and they preached the gospel and a whole bunch of people that lived with her got saved. That's all it means. And when she and her husband had been baptized, I'm sorry, her husband, her household, she probably had no husband, had been baptized. She urged us saying... Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, come to my house. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And it says she prevailed upon us. She forcefully insisted. That's what it means. She was not going to take no for She was a, you know, a suave businesswoman. She knows how to make a sale. You are coming to my house. They acquiesce. They take her upon her word. They go there and they preach all the more. And there was a revival in her household. And that's why it says her whole household got saved. Now, some people will say, people who believe in infant baptism will say, well, there it is, infant baptism in that verse, because it said uh, she got baptized and her whole household. And what they mean by that is she got uh, saved and all the babies at her house too. But it doesn't say babies. And everybody in her household could have been a grown adult. So it's an argument from silence. It's just not legitimate. But anyway, she got baptized after she got saved, and that is the biblical model. Well, just to summarize, uh, to close us, some practical principles we can take away or just by way of reminder that remember that God is providential and in control of all things in life. And sometimes His direction comes with the answer of no. Also, that God is sovereign in salvation, which should encourage our hearts to keep praying for and waiting on those you've witnessed to and see if God might keep working on their heart that He might open their heart, removing their blindness because salvation is from 
our God. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank God for his word. Father, we do thank you for our time together and again to be in the book of Acts, to see this amazing history that was true, people you used, sinners that were fallen and, and finite yet to accomplish your will, will that uh, changed the world and impact the changes that have gone on for 2,000 years that affect our lives directly. Thank you for being sovereign and totally in control. I pray for all those that we know individually that are not believers, that we've been witnessing to, family members, that you would keep working on their hearts with your Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit promised he would to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment for their good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.